Welcome to Cornerstone Reformed Baptist Church. Thank you for using and sharing our resources. What you're about to hear is God's Word from one of our teaching elders. We trust that God's Word will inspire, instruct, and bless you. For further teachings or information on our ministry, please visit us on our website at cornerstonerbc.com. That's cornerstonerbc.com. Well, brothers and sisters, we find ourselves now in John chapter 12, and we are now within a week, within six days, in fact, of the, of the crucifixion of our Lord. Christ's public ministry thus far has spanned over a little over three years, and we are so blessed to have the Word of God given to us through the generations, and what He has preserved for us is four accounts four accounts of the public ministry of our Lord. And we all can testify that Jesus went around proclaiming the good news to people, the good news of the kingdom, that the kingdom of God is at hand and the kingdom of God is at hand is good news because the king has come. The messianic king that has been long anticipated has come. Christ is that king. And with him he brings peace and reconciliation to sinners before a good and holy God if they embrace him by faith and trust in his finished work. But we also know as he walked through the regions in, in Israel, he proclaimed the kingdom of God with power, with mighty, mighty signs and, and mighty wonders and, and great miracles that... that really bedazzled people around him. They, they, they were undeniable and irrefutable to be made known that they are miracles at the hand of God, that God himself, the almighty God, was behind Christ. These miracles, they testified to who Jesus is. These miracles, they authenticated his claims. Many believed, but many did not believe. Those who believed saw the signs and the wonders and they knew that these are only possible from God and God alone. And therefore, if God has sanctioned this man, I need to listen to what he says. And Jesus spoke and taught and they embraced the truth that Jesus spoke. And by believing upon him, they received salvation for their souls. But others, in fact, the majority, according to Scripture, they did not believe. They may have followed after Christ because they were enamored with the spectacle. They were excited with the exhibition of power. But when he, all was said and done, they, they had little to no interest in his teachings. They had no joy in the proclamation of the good news from his lips. And that is a problem. Because Jesus didn't come with signs or wonders or miracles of eternal life. He came bearing the words of eternal life. And if you don't embrace what he says and the truth that he speaks, then your soul is condemned forever. Most of the religious and the political leaders of this day, they fit in that category of unbelief. And they were very much a representation of Israel as a whole. At first, in the early days when Jesus was ministering, they, they had itchy ears. They wanted to hear what Jesus was saying. They were curious. They, they were concerned to, to know, is this or could this be the Messiah? So they began to listen to what he had to say. and They began to ask questions and receive answers. And it was before long, wasn't long before they didn't like the answers they received from our Lord. In fact, they didn't like his teaching. They resented the Lord because what he said and what he taught was an offense to their sensibilities. To add salt to injury, the system of religion that they had meticulously built with their own hands over decades was beginning to crumble down. And with it, the respect of the people who now turn their backs upon the religious leaders of the day and towards Jesus Christ. You see, fairly early in the piece, the, the religious leaders of the day, they, they realized that the teachings of our Lord are incompatible with their own. In fact, they were antithetical to the cold and the mechanical and the ritualistic, the loveless religion of the first century that they so loved dearly. It had become crystal clear that Jesus 
was a great threat to Judaism. They, or the very existence of these men was now in peril. It was a no-brainer as far as they're concerned. Either Jesus prevails or we do. So our Lord became public enemy number one. They were resolved, resolved to remove this stigma called Christ from before their eyes. And time was of the essence, beloved. Time was of the essence. If too many people pledged their allegiance, if too many people, the followers there in Jerusalem and, and the regions, Galilee and Capernaum and the, and the regions at Decapolis and all those places, pledged their loyalty to Jesus Christ, there will come a point where they can do too little too late. So they needed, they needed to act and, and, and things were, were slipping through their fingers. But they, they had time. For now, the chief priests and the Pharisees still had a semblance of control over the people and the religious system of the day. But then, but then something huge happens just down the road in a place called Bethany. Because there Jesus raises a man who was dead and buried for four days from the dead. And it, was a te- it wasn't done in secret, but it was done before many. And it was attested and witnessed by so many. And before you know it, it made quite a stir in that region. And the word began to spread like wildfire throughout all the regions. And the leaders knew it's either now or never. Their time, that little time that they had, has diminished. It's either now or never, never. So they convened a, a meeting, all the, the religious leaders, the council, very likely to be the Sanhedrin, the high court of the day. And they officially decreed that they would put Jesus to death. Now we know, because we've been following through the text, that for a period of time, and we don't know exactly how long, Jesus removed himself with his disciples and they departed to a more remote location for a period of time. But here, back in John chapter 12, we know that Jesus has begun his journey back to Jerusalem. But before he gets there, he makes his way to Bethany. And in fact, it was last two weeks, we've explored and contemplated together the first eight verses of John chapter 12. And that, the context in essence, is that Jesus is thrown a party or a, or a supper or a dinner, if you want to call it, that to in his honor there in a place called Bethany. It's the very place that he raised Lazarus from the dead. And in fact, Lazarus was one of those reclining with Jesus at the table, having now received a, a new lease on, on life. Before long, word catches on and gets back to Jerusalem because Bethany is only a stroll down the road, a half hour stroll over the Mount of Olives. And then that brings us to verse 9 where we left off last week. We read, When the crowd of the Jews learnt that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, that's Christ, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. As I said earlier, Bethany is only a half-hour stroll to the east of Jerusalem. So word got around pretty quickly. And now, now they knew Jesus is back. Now remember back in verse 56 of the previous chapter, the the Jews had been coming from all over the regions from abroad and they all come to Jerusalem for that great feast called the Passover. And they'd been coming early for the reason of purifying themselves to make themselves eligible according to the law given to Moses for them to be eligible to partake in in this Passover. So they came a little early, and, and when they came, and the, and the population was starting, starting to trickle into Jerusalem before it swells up, as you are aware, of, to four or five or even six times its usual population at the time of the feasts, they began to look around and ask the question, is Jesus coming to this feast? Is Jesus coming? to That's the question they were asking in verse 56. Do you think that Jesus is coming to the feast? You know, it wasn't long before they came that that they were up to date with all that was going on in Jerusalem and around Jerusalem. It wasn't long before they realized and noticed that the hostility of the religious leaders and the political leaders against Jesus was continuing. In fact, it's heating up from the last time they were in Jerusalem. Presumably, it hasn't been long before now they've come to realize and have been made aware of the verdict of the council that they made to arrest Jesus, but not only to arrest him, but to kill him also. They knew that the Passover this year, 
If Jesus was going to make a presence, it will cost him dearly. And that's the question. Do you think he'll come? And the answer comes back. He's back. He's, he's back. He's made his way back. He's right now he's in, he's in Bethany and he is coming. And if you want to see him, just take a stroll over the Mount of Olives and he'll be there. It's pretty clear the motivation of the Jewish people right now was divided. We know that much. Some were for the Lord and some were against him. Sure, many were offended by Christ and wanted nothing to do with him. But we cannot deny that there are many who are quite genuine in, in their sympathy before, for the Lord. They, they, they wanted to know him more. They wanted to be by his side. They desired to, to hear him teach. They were encouraged and they were excited to hear that he's, he's finally coming back. They genuinely desired to spend time with him and listen to his teaching. Maybe, perhaps they... They took, had a taste of his teaching in previous feasts. And now they just can't wait to feed on more. But there's always those who are curious. Just plain curious. And, and that's what we see in verse 9. We're told when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. We've heard the testimony. We, we've come from all over the region to Jerusalem. And now we've, we've heard the testimony that there was a man dead and buried and four days later by the power of God through Jesus Christ. He was raised from the, from the dead. And, and now we need to go and see for ourselves is what, they're, is what they're thinking. If this is true, we have to see it with our own eyes. Now, there's no real danger for those, even if they had come to purify themselves, to make that trek over the Mount of Olives. I mean, if they're careful, they're not going to be made ceremonially unpure. I mean, that's not an issue, I wouldn't think. They just need to be back on the third day and the seventh day because that's when they have to do the ceremonial washings with the water. But they're free to go and come back if they like. How often do you get an opportunity to speak to a man who's been, who's been on the other side? Can you imagine the, the questions they'd have in their mind? I can look at your eyes now and I think you'd have some pretty nice, interesting questions to ask. Ones that the Bible doesn't answer, mind you. What was it like? Where did you go? Where were you for those four days, Lazarus? His soul wasn't on pause. He was somewhere. They, they would like to know. Was there a bright light? Tell me, Lazarus. And then they maybe would go to the tomb and someone would point to that tomb and say, there you go, the, the rock has been rolled away and look, there's no one there. Lazarus, he lied in that tomb for four days, but that tomb is now empty. Here he is, his life, right there before your eyes, a man who was dead and buried four days. That's him over there. And all these people have witnessed that he was made alive, that he was dead and buried. And now... And now he is alive. How exciting. There are some in that category who are just curious and they just wanted to go and check things out. That's what we see throughout the Gospels. There's always been two reactions, two responses to the miracles of our Lord. Always some who believe, not simply in the miracle, they, they believe that this is the power of God on display in the Son of God and then, and then look to the Savior, look to Christ, the one who, who performs the miracle and then, and then listen to his word and, and acknowledge his claims and place their trust in a person, not in an event, but in a person, Jesus Christ. Salvation comes by faith alone, by grace alone, by faith alone, in who? In Christ alone, not in the miracles, not in the actions, not in the works, but in Jesus Christ, a person. Some believe John tells us some believe in the next verse, and we'll get to that in a few moments. But also there are some who, who just don't believe. Even though they don't believe, they still follow after Jesus. But why? They follow because of the thrill. Some have merely gone over from Jerusalem to Bethany and made that trek over the Mount of Olives simply to see Lazarus with their eyes and to enjoy the exhibition. The, the thrill, they are thrill seekers. And make the journey all for the wrong reasons. Now I understand the appeal. 
I do, believe me, I understand the appeal. But it's sad as well. Because how often we've seen in the gospel swarms following after Jesus, fascinated by his miracles, captivated by, by the supernatural, the love for the buzz that is taking place. Even they may get a free meal out of it and yet miss the whole point of why the power of God is on display in the first place. It's not to mesmerize. It's not about the miracles. It's not about the supernatural things we see with the eyes. It's not about the signs themselves. It never was. It's about the one who performs them. It's about Christ Jesus, the Son of God, demonstrating the power of God. It's about what He has come to give sinners. And those miracles cry out, listen to me. The Father, the voice from heaven, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to Him. It never was about Lazarus. It's always been about Jesus. It's so ingrained in our sinful humanity. We love to be entertained. We love the wow factor. We, we love the ecstasy and the excitement. So often the crowds travel over land and sea, and not for Jesus, but for the thrill, for the buzz, for the elation in hope that they'll witness something supernatural and nothing more. When the one who can fulfill their greatest spiritual need who stands before them in that greatest spiritual need is to be forgiven of their sins. It's to have that burden of sin and unrighteousness and the depravity of the heart that one day will be judged by God to be lifted. And the one who is before them is capable, is able, is able to forgive, is able to make them right with God. He stands before them. And all they're concerned with is to be merely entertained. Beloved, I'm not going to harp on this point, but let me, let me ask you this question. What is at the very core of a heart of a person who seeks only to be entertained? Self. It's self. It's all about me. Excite me. Stimulate me. Captivate me. Do you see a problem with that? That's what you call self-idolatry. And it's inherent to our sinful human nature. So sad. When you read texts like this and others like it throughout the Gospels, so sad that so many make the journey to marvel. And in this case, they're marveling at a man who's been brought back to life when they themselves are yet dead men walking, spiritually speaking. That's devastating. Self-idolatry. Loving self more than God is a pitfall we can all fall into. All of us. May the Lord give ears to ear and eyes to see. Moving on. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Great crowds came to Bethany, we're told. They were mixed in their motivations, we know that much. But either way, salvation is of the Lord. Even if they came with the wrong motivations, with the wrong intentions, even if they came with fleshly desires, the Lord used this experience because in his mercy to, to bring unto himself lost sinners, lost sheep, and save them through his son, which is a glorious reality. And through, through the authenticated power of God that could not be denied through Jesus the Son, Many turned their eyes upon Christ and apprehended him by faith, which is the only way one can be saved, to trust in the finished work of the person of Jesus Christ. 
The very fact that Lazarus was alive and they could behold him with their very eyes proves Jesus' claims to be true. It's clear. All of Scripture testifies that only God is able to raise the dead. And since Yahweh is the power behind Christ, he's also the one who is behind his claims, his words, his testimony. And the only rightful response by anyone who comes that way would be to submit in faith and obedience. The Lord God was moving mightily among these people and many, many were saved by his spirit on that day and we'll explore that a little later. But the enemy was also in full swing. And before us in these verses, we get a glimpse, just a glimpse of the deep darkness of the moral depravity of man's heart apart from the grace of God. The chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death also, we're told. They'd already planned to kill Christ, right? But here, but here they want to put Lazarus to death. Christ is already on their hit list, hit list, on the number one on their hit list. But then, but then Lazarus has now been placed on that hit list as he occupies the number two position. This is so remarkable to me. On the one hand, the massive miracle that is obviously from the hand of God and cannot be denied that God is sanctioning his, his son for all to see. And many believed in Jesus Christ, as I said earlier, and they were saved as a result and became true followers of Christ. And on the other hand, the chief priests who cannot refute the miracle. You realize that? They cannot refute the miracle. They knew it was real. And they decided the best course of action wasn't to concede upon the facts. Facts that they could not deny. No one could deny. Undeniable. But rather, rather than eating humble pie and reevaluate their, their assessment about Jesus, no, that's not what they do. Instead, they choose to dig their heels in the hardness of their hearts and eliminate the evidence. We can't deny that this miracle took place. But what we can do is eliminate the evidence. Let's kill Lazarus. These are... These are the chief priests. These are leaders in Israel. These are men who served in the temple before the Lord. These are men who represented the people before the Lord in the temple and offered sacrifices before Yahweh on behalf of the people. These are men who ought to have pleaded for the people before God. These are the men who are meant to be judges and to judge rightly. In the Jewish judicial system. And these are the men who conclude that the best course of action is to remove the evidence by murdering an innocent man. Let that sink in for a moment. Lazarus did nothing wrong. He was simply the recipient of the mercy and the grace and the love of God in Christ. Lazarus did nothing wrong. He was merely a testimony of the goodness of God upon a sinner. That's it. And for that, the hardened hearts of the chief priests conspired to kill him. Despite all the evidence, despite how much light in the situation, it didn't matter. They, they chose to cancel the evidence. Get rid of Lazarus. And when asked, who is this Lazarus? Oh, you've come to see Lazarus? Oh, that guy who was rumored to be raised from the dead. No, he's dead. He's buried. There's his grave over there. Just go and have a look. Let's get rid. Let's get rid of the miracle. Let's get rid of Lazarus. Nothing to see here, people. Go back to your homes. It didn't happen. It's all, it's all okay. Whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. We're going to get our way, no matter who opposes us. And this is where it gets very scary. Beloved, this is where it gets terrifying. And this shows us the condition of the human heart apart from the grace of God. Right now, these chief priests, what they have done is they've declared war against God. 
Think about this for a moment. They couldn't refute the miracle because Lazarus was living proof. Resurrection did take place on that day in Bethany and no one can say anything about it. It is proven there's too many witnesses and there he is sitting right there and for everyone to see that here's the man who was once dead who is now alive before them. The resurrection did occur. Now, for, for these men who are chief priests, who are mainly Sadducees, there's a problem with that, and I think you know what it is. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. And this was a big problem for them, because if this Lazarus was raised from the dead, then what are they going to do with their theology? The people are no longer going to respect this system that says there's no resurrection, no angels, there's nothing of the Spirit. It's here and now and that's it. That's what the Sadducees believed. And that's a big problem because Lazarus puts a spanner in their teaching for sure. But but there's much more at play than that. You see, they knew. These men were not ignorant to the Word of God. They were well versed. And they knew that the breath of the Almighty gives life. Job 33.4 They knew that Yahweh is the fountain of life, as we see throughout the Scripture, especially in the Psalms, like Psalm number, chapter 36, verse 9. They weren't ignorant to the fact that Yahweh gives life, and Yahweh takes it away, according to Job 1. These men were not oblivious, beloved. You don't put them in their category of being ignorant. They knew. They were well-versed. By getting rid of the evidence, murdering an innocent man, these so-called religious men were willfully acting in opposition to Yahweh. They've declared war against the Almighty, not only because they're violating the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder. That's one thing. But it's more than that. With Lazarus in view, hear me now. With Lazarus in view, Yahweh, the only true God, the God of the universe, says, live. And the chief priests say, die. God has already decreed that Lazarus is to live. And here we have the chief priests who are meant to be representing Yahweh before the people and the people before Yahweh. They declare the opposite and say, he said you should live, but we say he must die. And so we're going to do everything in our endeavor to put this man to death. An attempt to stay the hand of God. Who decides who lives? And who decides who dies? God or man? Who gives and takes away? He sits in the heavens right now. And he laughs. Who is this? who tries to stay in my hand. There's nothing in the text here, in the gospel, according to John, who's the only, who's the only gospel author that brings out this whole story. There's nothing to suggest that these chief priests carried out or were successful in accomplishing this plan. But do they really think that if they did put Lazarus to death, that the one who raised him from the dead would not raise him again? (laughs) Such is the arrogance and the darkness of the human heart apart from the grace of God. No fear of God and there's no regard for man. There is a reason that the chief priests decreed this and I'll get to that shortly. But in essence... It's because they wanted to get their own way. They, in their mind, had, had a structure, had a system that they liked and they weren't prepared to give up. And, 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 and they, they weren't prepared for it to be taken away by this Jesus or by the, by the witness to Jesus, Lazarus, which they could do nothing about because he attests to his truth. Even if it means taking this and making war against God himself. Even if it means destroying an innocent human life. This is dark, beloved. This is really dark. In fact, when I think about the depravity of the human soul, my mind often goes to the chief priests in John chapter 12. That's where my mind goes. 
But beloved, it's easy to put them in a special category of evil. A, they already plotted to kill Jesus. And even though there's evidence that Christ is Messiah, he is the Son of God, he carries, he is empowered with the, the power of God, and there's no way they could refute the fact that Lazarus stands alive before them and a testimony to the power of God, although that is the case. We can sometimes put them in a category on their own and say that is worse. That is worse than most. They're the worst of the worst. To kill an innocent guy and then to remove the evidence and then cover it up. We can quite easily point the finger and say that's dark. We can do that. But the Bible doesn't let us off the hook so easily. In fact, if we read the scripture and we walk away merely thinking, I'm glad that's not me. I'll never do anything remotely that evil. Be careful. Beloved, be careful. You may have missed the whole point. The Pharisee in Luke 18, he prayed like that, remember? Hands to the heavens with his eyes. Father, I said, Lord, I I'm so glad I'm not like other men. The tax collector before him, I'm not like that guy either. And you have that tax collector who comes before the Lord, not raising his eyes to the heavens because he cannot pound his chest, looking to the floor in humility, in brokenness. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then Jesus says, which one goes home justified? But brother, you might say, I've never committed or thought of committing a crime like the chief priests, even remotely as bad as that, as what is described for us here in John chapter 12. Well, maybe you're right. Actually, I hope you're right. But you have the potential to. This is where it gets very terrifying. This is a sinful human nature. This is the fallen nature. This is the flesh, beloved. Unchecked. It'll stop at nothing to get what it desires. The human, sinful human nature, beloved, always seeks to protect itself. It always seeks itself. It always is self-loving. And until you're done with the sinful human nature that we all possess, and that only happens in glory, the potential for rank evil remains within. And that should be a fearful thought. In fact, an example of this potential being manifested well, we have many examples in the scripture. But an example of this potential being manifested in the life of a believer, of a godly man, is given to us in one who is called or is described as one who is after God's own heart. David. I only make the point because providentially through the week, I, I read through the text here in Second Samuel chapter 11. It's fresh and it is a doozy and it applies to what we're talking about today. The lust of the eyes in, in, David's, in David's eyes led to a detestable act and you know what it is, an act of adultery. And that act was to impregnate another man's wife. And it wasn't any man. No. This, this, this David had done an abominable act with, against the wife of one of his mighty men, one of his commanders, a, a man that's no doubt dear to him, a man who's faithful, a, a man who's courageous, a man who's trustworthy, a man who's loyal to the king, a man who is an asset to the kingdom of Israel. This was no enemy. This was a friend. David sinned with Uriah's wife. And in a few months' time, he's going to be found out. 
Rather than own up in repentance, he chooses instead to cover up his sin and protect, hear this, his reputation. Calling Uriah back from battle, he, he brings him in. And after he debriefs, debriefs sorry, Uriah, he sends him away to, to go back to his wife and hoping he would go and spend time with his wife. Only to find out that that night he didn't go back home. No, Uriah was a nobleman. Uriah stayed at the, 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 the entrance of the king's palace with the other servants and he slept there. And when David asked him, why did you sleep here? He said, how can I go back to the rest of my home and spend time with my wife when my men are still out in the open country in battle? Far be it from me. What a noble man. What an honorable man. So David steps up the plan. Beloved, beloved, I'm only bringing this up so you know the contents of the human heart, how, how we could be so dark on the inside. This flesh, it's a force to be reckoned with. So he steps up the plan and the next night brings him in and has a meal with him. Has a lovely time, I'm sure, with the king over his table, over a meal. But then he pours some wine and or some alcohol and more alcohol and more alcohol and he gets Uriah drunk. Surely he'll go, but he doesn't. Again, he goes to the same place and spends that night on a couch with the king's servants. Uriah, even in that state, doesn't violate his conscience. What's left? Well, the king, King David. Remember, the king that was described as a man after God's own heart, who still has the sinful nature within, the flesh within the next day he knows there's nothing he can do. He's going to be found out. So he brings Uriah before his presence and says, okay, I'm going to send you back in battle. But he puts a letter in his hand, a handwritten letter by king himself. And you said, you take that letter to Joab and Uriah is the one who acts as a messenger with that letter that is sealed by the king's signet ring, very likely. Takes it to Joab, the general of the army of Israel. And when he opens it, the instruction is you place Uriah at the front line of the fiercest ba battle to guarantee his death. David murdered not an enemy but a friend to cover up his sin he ends up being well he ends up repenting we know the story and we can move on and it costs him dearly but beloved this is the scheming and the deception of the human heart and what it is capable of in order to protect itself, in order to get what it desires. And that ought to create a fear in us. Because we all know that impulse. I know you do. Not to kill, but that impulse to cover up your own sins. Because we don't want to be caught out at all. But you start down that track and it never ends. We must keep short accounts with God. Because he's a God who not only convicts us of our sins, but he turns our face to Jesus Christ. Who forgives our sins. The enemy will say, no, you go down that track. Your reputation is on the line. Your friendship is on the line. Your job is on the line. It doesn't matter. Eternity is far more important than any of that. And when, this, when the Lord, and it is the same Spirit, the Spirit of God that convicts the heart of sin, He's the same Spirit who now turns our eyes to the Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the one who's faithful. When we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from not some, but all unrighteousness. Do we believe it? Because that's what it is to remain in the light. When we stumble and fall, we look to the Savior and we say, I repent of my sins and I know there's forgiveness in you. I take responsibility for it. Unchecked, beloved. 
unchecked, the human heart is capable of the most atrocious darkness and evil. And that ought to humble you and it ought to humble me to realize our total dependency upon Jesus, upon our Lord, for strength. Because on our own we're not strong enough. On our own own, we don't have the, the muscle or the ability or the capability to fight the enemy. Beloved, we don't have it. We don't have it. How many have we seen who fall because they rely on the flesh? The flesh will lead you down the path of brokenness. Don't do it. Trust in the Lord. Walk in the Spirit. Remain in the light of Jesus Christ. It ought to make us think, oh, how desperately needy am I for Jesus? Take heed when you think you stand, the Apostle Paul says, lest you fall. Let the chief priests in John chapter 12 be a word of warning that declares from our heart, but by the grace of God, that could be me. But by the grace of God. You might be thinking, but brother, this text is about the sin of the chief priests. Why do you always bring us into the matter? You're right. The text is not about you. It is about the chief priests. But beloved, I want us to recognize that we're made out of the same stuff. The sinful flesh. I want us to feel the weight of that reality. And I want us to tremble. We're not merely meant to point the finger and walk away. We're meant to recognize our heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. And then who can understand it? You know some, but you don't know the depth. Only he does. Unless we contemplate how corrupt our sinful nature is, we will fail to appreciate two things. Firstly, what we have been saved from. What grace is. Because that's all that we were. Yes, we have potential to go down the path of real deep darkness and do evils that you and I even now would never think we would do but one incremental step at a time and we're there. We have potential. But this is the glory of our salvation. The glory of our salvation is this, that through, by the grace of God, through Jesus Christ, faith upon Christ, and the forgiveness of our sins, not only has He forgiven our sins, but He has created a new man or woman within us. He's replaced the heart of stone and given us a heart of flesh that loves Him. A heart that now, by the power of His Spirit, can obey Him. You see, the difference is before, we were in chains, dominated by the flesh, dominated by sin. We could do no other. Apart from the grace of God, apart from the restraining hand of God, we could sink to new lows that we wouldn't even imagine, like we've just explored. But, But the difference is that before... Yes, we had potential, and, but that was all we could do. But by His grace, those chains have been broken. The relationship we have with Christ brings forth the Spirit of God who empowers us. Now we can obey Him. Now we can choose where before we couldn't. Now we can choose to, to not go down that path, but to remain in the light of Jesus Christ, to follow after the one who declares, I am the light of the world. To love His Word, to love Him, to be in communion with Him, to walk in His ways, to desire His heart. That's the difference. And unless we understand how broken and corrupted and evil the sinful nature is and what we've been saved from, we will not appreciate grace. We will not appreciate Jesus. And secondly... The reason I bring it up is, and and we find texts like this in Scripture, is because only when we realize how dangerous our flesh is and how weak we are, that we begin to realize how needy we are of Jesus. 
Have you ever been called needy? That's quite offensive. But you are needy, and so am I. We are needy. We are needy. And that should humble us to know we are in absolute desperate need for him every day, every moment of every day of our lives. Beloved, our eyes need to be fixed upon the one who's the author and the perfecter of our faith. We ought to be following after the one who's the light of the world because the moment we take our eyes off him, we begin to act in the flesh. And that's a slippery slope. That should give us the impact of our hearts and and to see how critical it is to live by the Spirit, to walk in the path of righteousness by the power of God and God alone. We must be humble, beloved. And when we discover what lives within, although we can see what we've been saved from, but realize still what the flesh can or is potentially can do, then it ought to bring us to our knees. The chief priests declared war against Yahweh, right? But why? Why did they plot to murder Lazarus, an innocent man? You, you might say to cover up a miracle. Yes, I, I agree, absolutely. But what is the, the heart of the cover-up? Why are they covering up the miracle? For David, it was to rep- remember David's sin? It was to protect his, his reputation. It was to, to cover up so he's not found out in his sin. A sin, by the way, that should have been punishable by death, but God had grace upon him. For the chief priests, there is a reason why they've gone down this path of wickedness. And the Apostle Paul tells us in verse 11. So the chief priests, we're told, made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on, because, hear this, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Did you get that? Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. You see, the sense here, I believe, is not a geographical sense. It's not they are traveling away or, or, or they are going away. But rather it is they are departing. They are deserting. They're leaving something behind. You see... They're going away is to turn their back and leave something behind and go after something else. They're leaving so-called religion behind. They're leaving so-called Judaism behind. They're abandoning the system that is under the chief priests and under their control. And now they are decided to follow after Christ. And the Pharisees seem to be implying the exact same thing in verse 19 of the same chapter. And we'll get there in a few weeks, God willing. Not only do many believe, we're told, in Jesus, but now they follow him after him. Turn their back on the old ways and they follow after Jesus. Why is that? Because he is the good shepherd who leads them to green pastures. Their loyalties are no longer with the religious leaders of the day. Their loyalties have changed. Now they're loyal to Christ, their king. You see, the ways of the Lord is completely incompatible with the ways of the chief priests. You can't have both. New converts are, are deserting the old way. They must. I mean, that's, that's what Christianity is. We turn our back on the, on the old and how we used to live. Our eyes are open and now we follow after a new master, a new savior, Jesus Christ, no longer walking in the flesh. No longer is the God of this age, the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of this world. No longer is he our God. Small g. The only true God, the triune God is our God. And we got to know him because we've been reconciled to him through Jesus Christ. The chief priests are losing. You can see that. They're losing power. They're losing control. They're losing respect of the people. They're losing their reputation. Their empire which is built by their own hands, is beginning to collapse before their very eyes. One thing is for sure, this Jesus movement must be squashed. And this requires extreme measures. Lazarus must die. They weren't prepared to give it up. So they resort to killing an innocent man. Why? As I said earlier, because Lazarus was a walking 
talking testimony of the power and the grace and the mercy and the love of God. Lazarus was a testimony that Jesus is indeed who he claims to be. I am the resurrection and the life. This Jesus speaks truth. And the truth of Jesus is antithetical to the religions and the ways that we've been taught. And so now we need to abandon what we've been taught and, and walk after the truth. What we've, has been crafted by the, the, the Pharisees and the chief priests and the system that is, that is being taught to us, we now know is, is aberrant, it's wrong, it's error, and we need to walk after what is right and true. And the truth, beloved, exposes, and the truth offends. And that's what we see before us. We see an offended people in the chief priests. Their ego is struck their pride is attacked. Now they're offended at the Lord. And it reminds me of our Lord's words in Matthew chapter 11. Blessed is the man who is not offended by me. Why would Jesus say that? Because what he says is actually a great offense to the flesh. But those who are not offended say, you can offend my flesh all day. You can offend me all day long. Because I know in and of myself there is nothing in me that is worthy of boasting. Only by your grace and by your grace alone. Lazarus became a target, beloved, because of what Christ has done in him. Not because of what he has done, I said that earlier, but rather because of what Christ has done in him. Lazarus is being persecuted because the, grace, the gracious fragrance of Jesus Christ is all over him. You see, persecution comes because of Christ. But do they really think they're going to get away with it? Actually, do they really think, these chief priests, that they will end the, chief, the, the Jesus movement that they're so fearful of? Do they think, honestly, if they put Jesus to death and they put Lazarus to death, that that's the end of that? Let me end on this point. <laughs> How wrong were they? Thinking that we'll put Jesus to death? We'll persecute his people? And he'll soon be forgotten. This Jesus movement without Christ and this Lazarus, this movement that be, seems to have like escalated and masses are walking after them, this will die down and Jesus will completely be forgotten. How wrong. Thinking that if we kill their master, if we arrest his disciples, if we persecute his followers, if we ban his teaching, if we fabricate blasphemous things, rumors against him, if we defame his renown, if we pursue anyone violently who calls upon the name of Jesus, this will come crumbling down. Oh, how wrong were they? <laughs> they can do all that, and they did do all that, and they continue to do that, at least the spirit that is within the chief priests of the day. But they underestimated one, and I'm not going to call it a minor detail, but a major detail, and that is that Jesus is the Son of God. And all authority in heaven and on earth and under the earth belongs to him. And he has declared, I will build my church and the gates of Hades, hell, will not prevail over it. My church will grow. I will steamroll and nothing can get in its ways. No power. No authority, no principality, no ideology, no philosophy, no system of religion, nothing that you can imagine physically or, in, or, or spiritually will stand in the way or stop our Savior from accomplishing His purposes and building His church one brick, one sheep at a time because He said He will and He will indeed. All authority, not some, all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to our Savior. 
2,000 years on and look at us. We're here worshipping this great God through Christ Jesus. 2,000 years on. And we're honouring and loving our resurrected Saviour. And the church of Jesus Christ, beloved, is alive and it's well. Because he said, I will build my church. And he will build his church. And he'll build it beautiful. Because he is beautiful. And his church is going to be a reflection of him. The true church. He'll bring it to completion because he said he will. He said that which he's begun, he'll bring to finality, to completion. And he will. His bride, he will bring unto himself and he will make her pure and holy and without spot and without blemish but until he returns his bride will be the proclaimer of jesus christ who is the truth she is the pillar and the buttress of truth she's a reflection of jesus christ the one who empowers her to go into this dark dark world with his light and to shine his light into the nations Because he says through his light, through the gospel and by the power of his spirit and through the means of his people who are so unworthy, look at us. He'll build something beautiful. And we have a part in that. Oh, there will be persecution. He who seeks to live a godly life will, it doesn't say may, will be persecuted, 2 Timothy 3.12. They'll hate you, Christian. But Jesus says, don't be surprised if they hate you because they hated me first. They'll hate you just like they hated Lazarus because you're the aroma of Christ. And you're a testimony of his goodness and of his grace and of his love and of his mercy. Look what he can do with a sinner like me. Sorry, I don't mean that boastfully. I'm just saying that we can all say those words. There will be bloodshed. There will be bloodshed. And as we've looked through human history and the church history, we've seen much blood has been spilt in the name of Jesus Christ. But that will make his bride and his church even stronger. Because the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Yeah, there will be bloodshed. But in his ways, he actually makes the church stronger as a result. No matter what the world does, beloved, it won't be able to slow down the Jesus movement. Not because of who we are or what we're capable of, but because of who our Lord is. And that's why he says, keeping our eyes upon the author and the perfecter of our faith. He is the Alpha, and He is the Omega, and He's everything in between, beloved. Don't rely on your own strength or mine. Trust in Him. Look to Him. Rest in Him and in Him alone. Because He said He'll bring His bride into perfection, and I believe if He has spoken, He will bring that to fruition. Beloved, I have read this book in its totality read it to the end and I can tell you that Christ wins in the end it's not a matter of who wins Christ wins in the end praise to be his name the question is whose side are you on let's pray Lord, we thank you for the time that you've given us to meditate upon these few verses that are before us. Lord, some very high and lofty truths are found in in these words. Some, Lord, of those truths are indeed terrifying. They reveal to us, Lord, through the the darkness of the human heart that is manifested in even these men of the potential for evil inside every one of us. Lord, I pray that you would not leave us in that state. 
that we would not be in a state of fear for the joy of the Lord is our strength. But rather we would look to Christ fully cognizant, fully aware of who we are in and of ourselves, what we are inherently as humans. And to recognize what lies within, but also to see and to appreciate and to be joyful in what you have already done for us and what you continue to do in us. Oh Lord, if we had this knowledge, if, we, if our eyes were open to these truths and, and we didn't have hope, how can, we, how can we live another day? But we do have hope. And our hope is secure because it's upon the, the rock of all ages. We have anchored our hearts upon Jesus Christ. Upon you, Lord. And you are the one who hung upon the cross and said, It is finished. You have done all, all things that pertain to our salvation, to the end of the age. Help us to trust in you, to embrace you by faith, not to walk in our own strength or in our own ways. You will build your church, and we're grateful for that. And you're so glad. So glad that you, Lord, have have chosen many of us. Not that we are worthy. Help us, Lord, not to be proud. Help us not to have haughty eyes over those who are yet in darkness. But always remind us that that, but by the grace of God, that could have been me. And help us to fix our eyes upon Jesus. And as we recognize of how great our sin was. And what we have begin, we've been forgiven from. May that Lord correlate to how great our love is for our Savior. Who has done all these things for unworthy sinners like us. It is all about you, Jesus. I pray that you would give us hearts to be fixed upon you. That our triune God will be exalted because of what you have done in our lives. And help us to rest. Help us to rest in you. We ask these things in your name. Well, brothers and sisters, it is a, um, a joyful time of our service now that we come, a joyful and a very reverent time where we come around the Lord's, Lord's table. When Jesus said that he will build his church, it wasn't simply a, like a mystical, abstract thing that is out there, that Jesus does his thing and, and we believe and we just do our thing. There's, there's a unity that we have in Christ the life that we enjoy the eternal life that he speaks of is actually his own life he's united us into himself Apostle Paul says we are one in spirit with him glorious words glorious words but he's also not only promised that he'll bring his church from where she is to completion where where when we think of the church it's not the building of course it's not the bricks it's not the roof and they're not literal bricks, but they're people. He saves one at a time. And when that structure is complete, that is all that the Father has given the Son, that he will save and he will lose none. That's a promise of his. When that structure is complete, when the bride is ready, he will come back and he will take us home. Until then, and we are now in the until then process, in the until then stage. He doesn't say, here you go, here's a promise, and walk away. No, he gives us what is required to get us home. Because as he leads us, he leads us through green to green pastures. And he leads us through his word. My word is a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. And by the power of his Holy Spirit, he leads us and he gives us the means. That is the, the local church, the community of believers who fellowship one with the other, who pray for one another, who love one another, who live their lives one with the other, who worship as we are one with the other. He gives us the, the means, which is glorious. But he also has instituted ordinances for us to see him and to be reminded of what he has done 
And one of those is this, the Lord's table, as we reminded of the body of our Christ and the blood that was shed, the blood of the covenant. Beloved, this is not just not an activity or a ritual we do. Our faith is actually being strengthened as we partake in these activities. The Lord nourishes our soul as we partake in these activities. Not because we stand and talk, put the elements and put them in our mouth. No, it's because of what they represent. And it is wisdom. He's ordained that when we, often as often as we get together in this way, that we partake in this glorious, this glorious act of worship so that our souls will be nourished as we contemplate together corporately what Jesus Christ has done, what the triune God has done through Jesus Christ for unworthy sinners like us. And that, and that invigorates us and strengthens us. Because that truth is planted in our hearts, planted by Him. His love is poured out into our hearts by His Holy Spirit. And when we partake in this activity, it ought to be an activity in faith. And this is how we come before Him in a worthy manner. That we recognize what He has done for us. And with grateful hearts, we worship Him for it. We do that corporately. And this is an incredible blessing for us. We do it weekly. And it ought to never become mundane or common in our eyes. And may we really come to recognize how glorious this time is as we remember the death of our Savior to purchase our redemption. So in a few moments, I am going to ask that you stand and that those who are in Christ, those who not only have placed their hope and their faith upon the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, and the salvation of your soul, but continue to hope in him. Continue to walk by faith in him because there is no other way. Then you are invited to come forward and to partake with us. We also ask at Cornerstone that, that you have also been obedient to the ordinance of baptism, that if you have been baptized also and that you placed your trust in Jesus Christ, this table is for you. If your conscience allows you, please come forward Take of the elements, return back to your seats, remain standing, and together let's corporately partake as we remember the death of our Savior. Please come forward.